welcome to The Catalyst, a podcast that I created to have critical and necessary conversations with people that I feel are doing really amazing and positive things in society. And so I'm so happy and excited to have my very first guest be Dean Karana, um, Rakesh Karana, that is, Dean of Harvard College. So Dean Karana, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to come and speak with me. It's such an honor. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I think before I get into the substance of this conversation, I would love to talk about your journey to Harvard. How does one become Dean of Harvard College? Well, it's not anything I planned. Um, It was, uh, I was a faculty member at uh, Harvard Business School um, and also serving as faculty dean of one of the houses at the college. Um, But again, it was not something that you know, I would have said that it was anything that was on my horizon. Um, there's a lot of serendipity in it. Uh, I didn't even get into Harvard College as an undergraduate. Uh, so I think one lesson to take away is that it's easier to become dean. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, I think how I would love to start it off is I remember a very particular moment before second semester freshman year started is I participated in this program um, called the first year enrichment program. And the whole gist of it is, you know, you sit and you reflect on what has passed and what's to come. And I think I really needed that because at a place like Harvard, it's a luxury to just have time to sit and reflect. And as I was enjoying this luxury, you came and spoke with us and you said something along the lines of, you know, I really tell students that it's important to do things that will lead to fulfillment and eventually, you know, a really content worthy obituary rather than just do things for the purpose of resume building. And I was like, oh, my God, he's so right. But, you know, as a freshman, I've been, you know, confronted with this subculture at Harvard that exists. That's like, listen, finance and consulting. Those are the only two things that exist. If you're not on this train, you know, what are you doing? And so I think my first question to you is, as an administrator and as a dean, like, how do we rectify, like, this disparity with saying to students, really focus on things that, you know, give you fulfillment, but at the same time, students are confronted with a subculture that is so strong and has so many followers, myself included, I want to add. So how do we rectify that? Well, I definitely remember that conversation. I think one thing I would say is, first of all, um, is there a dominant kind of meme at the college um, at Harvard University that you should be doing X, Y, and Z, and A, B, and C? Um, I definitely sense that there is, um, and it feels real and tangible to, to students. But I think it often hides the diversity of paths that people take through Harvard. And in many ways, it may even uh, lag the reality uh, that our students often pursue many more diverse paths through Harvard. There's no such thing as a single Harvard experience. Uh, But there's a lot of pressure. Uh, What I hear often from students is one is, you know, what Harvard does and uh, questions around uh, how students choose concentrations. It tends, does it tend to sort of direct them or funnel them through um, a narrow set of concentrations? There's a second set of questions around opportunities and the careers that people are considering. But I'd also like to put that into a larger context is the choices that we make and also what we come in with, um, the pressures that all of us feel um, to make the most of an opportunity. And given the uncertainties when we come to college, we tend to look to the left or to the right or the people ahead of us and use that as a guide path. And so it's not surprising that people will think, you know, given the amount of resources that are out there that are directed toward shifting people toward the private sector, 
uh, given the pressures people feel sometimes about doing something that's Harvard-worthy or extrinsic definitions to success, it's very natural as an undergraduate to feel like there's a narrow set of legitimate paths. One thing I really encourage students to do is to actually meet a lot of the other students who are not going down that usual path. And there are so many of your peers who are, um, who are doing really interesting things, taking chances, doing fellowships, um, taking some time to travel, uh, working at a summer camp during an internship. Um, but to find that sense of internal definition and begin building an internal definition of success rather than the sort of extrinsic one which the world sort of you know is constantly reinforcing right i think that's what i've also struggled with freshman year is defining success for what it means to me rather than what it means for some you know arbitrary very defined explicit definition of success and moving on to your experience as you know a dean and administrator you've have been in this position where you've been able to see thousands upon thousands of students come in and out of Harvard. And, you know, with that, I'm sure it comes with so many stories and laughs. And so my question is, what has been a really impactful, positive moment for you as Dean? Like, what was an event or an experience or a moment that said, wow, I'm so lucky to be in this position? So there's so many moments. I mean, I, I every day I pinch myself when I walk onto campus and, um, to know that I get to be with such talented individuals, to work with such wonderful faculty and a wonderful staff, and that really is bought into the idea that we're here to set the conditions for students to flourish. But you know, one of the things that really does stand out to me um, is the program that you know you mentioned. Um, yeah, the first year enrichment program. Yeah, and to be in a space, and so what we did in that program and uh, is. Audrey was referring to is we actually gave students the write-ups people did in their fifth, tenth, and like 25th reunions. And part of it was to really reflect on what matters to people depending on what stage in life yeah. uh, we are. And I think one of the things that's wonderful about that moment is that we start developing a pluralist definition of success, that there's not just one definition, and that also the things that seem so big and important, you know, say while you're in college or immediately after, tend to become less important. And the things that start mattering are not, you know, to use David Brooks's idea, the things on your resume, but rather the relationships you've developed, how you've addressed hardships which are inevitable in life, the inspiration that comes from watching someone deal with a difficult situation, seeing them connect with others, asking for help, and that those are the things that give a real sense of meaning and purpose and I think it's moments like that to be in such honest, authentic conversation with students where they reveal their vulnerabilities, where I, I get a chance to sort of reveal my own challenges that sort of new possibilities emerge. And I treasure every single one of those moments. Right. I think that I've actually struggled with that is being able to find moments and people in which I feel that I can be authentic with and genuine with. I think partially because I do spend too much time within that subculture and it doesn't lend itself to authenticity 100% of the time. But I think there's something to be said about seeking to understand others and seeking, you know, genuine and authentic friendships rather than, again, arbitrary things that you feel define success or the like. So that's really, yeah, that's really something. Um, I would love to get your advice. As an undergraduate, I feel that this period of my life has been so transformative. I've grown so much, 
know these past couple of months and I recognize that I still have so much to go and so much to grow so as a dean you know a parent and an adult who's been doing this for a long time what is your advice undergraduates to find purpose and meaning in college well I hate to give advice because you know I still ask myself the same questions that probably you're asking yourself um, who am I and who am I trying to become um, how am I being kind of true to the relationships I have in my life? And I'm, am I giving back the same way people are giving to me um, some sense of am I making some contribution to my family, to my friends, to the students, to my profession? I think those things are kind of everlasting questions and they don't stop. So, but I think part of what I would say is that there's no answers to those questions. And what I've learned is to sort of hold those questions in front of me um, and try to live my way to the answers. I like that, the idea of living your way to the answers. I think as someone who tries to plan for everything, including the unplannable, that's definitely something I should take into my life as well. Yeah. yeah. It turns out some of the most important questions in life don't have answers. Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you? I'm sure you've seen a lot of students like myself who have planned their ways to Harvard. And because we got into Harvard, it just only reaffirmed that planning our way through life is the way to go. So like, what do you tell for us, the planners who try to plan literally everything? Like, I've already started thinking about graduate school applications, and I just got here. And it's so early, and I don't even know if by the time it rolls around, I'll even want to do that. So like, how, like, what do we tell to students like myself that just love to plan and feel a sense of security in planning? Like, from your experience, like, what do you tell them? So, you know, I think, first of all, don't unlearn that. I think planning and thinking about the future and anticipating if you're trying to get achieve a goal, have some sense of how you get there is really important. I think my own children have that. I have two children in college, one who's in high school. I think that, you know, depending on what you want to do, you just classes you need to take for graduate school or um, opportunities you might want to avail yourself of. But I would say the same things that got you to Harvard are probably not going to be the same things that get you to the next stage in your life. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things I often tell students is don't hit rewind from high school and play again. Incredible. I think I definitely try to do that at the beginning is I had an excellent high school experience in the sense where I got into Harvard. And I think I got here and I had to completely redefine who I was because Harvard is a very different place. And I think I, I did exactly what you said don't do is I try to rewind. I try to do the same things that gave me success. But, you know, I'm in college now. I'm becoming an adult. So those same things might not give me the same success. So, yeah, don't rewind. Yeah. And also I would say that as you get older and life comes at you, there's a lot of things that are unplanned. Yeah. And you can't actually plan for things like illnesses in a family or the loss of a loved one or other ch losing a job or those or other challenges like that. But what you learn in college is how to respond to those challenges. So, you know, my mom always used to say to me, you, you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you respond to it. All right. Right. I think that's been a lesson for myself as well. I've. I respond to certain things in like a really healthy way, but I think because I still have a long ways to go, I respond to other things in a completely unhealthy way. And I think college really teaches you like what is healthy behavior and what is unhealthy behavior if you're always putting yourself in spaces and places that really foster their growth. 
Yeah, yeah. For me, that's been a lifetime project. You know, if something's going well, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm amazing. Things are awesome. And then if something didn't go, I feel, oh, this is horrible. This is terrible. I'm a loser. And I think as I've gotten older, I learned to not see the world in that kind mm-hmm. of binary, but rather to try to find a way to moderate my responses, to put things in proportion, to step back. And that's been helpful. Right, right. And so with Harvard students and Harvard culture, I mentioned you know, this particular subculture that says go to consulting, go to finance. As someone who's been here far longer than I have, what do you think, do you think there is one culture that defines Harvard and the people that shape it? Well, I think there's lots of subcultures at Harvard and subcommunities, and I think I wouldn't want to sort of say Harvard has a monoculture. Mm-hmm. But I think there are th- three things for me that sort of the people at Harvard have in common. And this is from my experience, both being a faculty member at the business school, being in the fa- Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and, and having a chance to live with college students as a faculty dean. First is intellectual curiosity. People are not just smart. There are many smart people in the world, but people are curious, and they want to know why. and they go beyond just like what the grade is going to be or superficial conversation. And I think that intellectual curiosity really is something that is in common with many, many people at Harvard. The second is, I'm trying to think of a better word for it, but it's this like very high motivation mm-hmm. and ambition. And I think what people are often cultivating is that that ambition can go in one of two ways. You can channel that ambition where it's all about you or you can engage in the reflective conversation where you say I want to be ambitious for improving health care for others or I want to be ambitious in creating a more economically inclusive uh, environment or society and learning to be ambitious in that direction is really important and I think that comes from reflection and reading going to uh, the numerous people who come to Harvard and give speeches and talks and and using that to inspire you to go in that direction. And then I think the third thing that really characterizes many people at Harvard is a public spiritedness. Yeah. That there's a sense that we've been given this great opportunity and there isn't anybody here who doesn't deserve to be here, but that there's you also feel a sense of responsibility and obligation to say, how can I use this to benefit people who didn't get the same chances that I've gotten here. And I think what I really love about the Harvard community is most people realize they didn't get here alone, that you don't go through here alone, and that you could be one of those people who helps other people achieve their goals and objectives. And I think that's something that I love about the kind of meta-Harvard culture. Yeah, yeah, I think that Throughout my experience, I've definitely met people that have been such incredible mentors to me. And when I've been given opportunities to be mentors back, specifically at Visitas, when Prefrosh would ask me about Harvard, I was like, oh, my God, they're asking me to give them advice. I was so excited to be able to, you know, lend my experience to someone and have them use that maybe as a basis for what they do or maybe as a tangent to what they do. Doesn't that feel great? It does. I think most people have this notion at Harvard that I shouldn't ask for help. But then I often ask people the question, how do you feel when people ask you for help? And most people say, I feel great. I love that somebody 
you know, is asking me for my advice. I love giving that advice. So I often say, if you even hesitate to ask for help, make somebody else's day and ask them for help anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking to, you know, Harvard's multiple, you know, cultures, because Harvard is a very multifaceted place. Another culture that I've encountered is um, with extracurriculars. There are some extracurriculars on campus that really truly do have this attitude of we come first, maybe even becoming academics, maybe even become, you know, before anything else. And my question is, as an administrator and as a dean, have you have you witnessed that culture? I have. um, In fact, Last week, I went to the final presentations for a class on the psychology of stress. And this was one of the topics that came up. I ended up talking to a few students after the class to try to interrogate why this comes up. And even in some cases, you said, kind of prioritizes sometimes even over academics. Absolutely. So people, for some reason, you know, well, there's always hesitation, but asking for a little bit more time on your assignment, people are more willing to do than asking for a little more time to finish your extracurricular. Yeah. And I thought that was an interesting kind of way to think about it. I think part of it is that, you know, embedded in some of our extracurriculars are also our social groups. And what I found sometimes is students may continue with an extracurricular even though while they're good at it, they're not as motivated to do it anymore. Uh, maybe their interests have changed, but they're always afraid of losing that social group. And you know, given that we're all wired to be connected, that the evaluations of our friends matter to us, we might infer that if we sort of drop this extracurricular or put less priority on it, we're gonna lose our friends. And I think people put a lot of internal pressure on them. I think that's not true uh, most of the time, I think real friends understand that people are constantly changing, evolving, that our interests are ebbing and flowing through our time, that we may want to spend more time exploring something new. And I hope we can be more gentler on each other as people stop doing certain things and start doing other things or may put less time in certain things. And so one of the opportunities that we have as an institution and as a culture is to be less judgmental of each other. Yeah. And I think if we can do that, and see each other with gentler eyes, I think we'll continue to make this culture feel like a place where everyone can flourish. Absolutely. I think one of the tragedies of having our extracurriculars completely dominate our lives is I have witnessed people say, oh, I'm going to take a lighter schedule in terms of courses so that I can focus on this. And I'm like, you're going to Harvard. You have so much, you know, opportunity to learn from people who are literally experts who have dedicated years upon years of their lives to this one particular subject. And you want to give that up because ATCG asks you and I say that as someone who is an ATCG and I love ATCG so it's not a call out but it I find it so tragic you know that I've even questioned oh maybe I should take a lighter schedule so that you know I'll be okay if I choose to pursue you know this extracurricular yeah so maybe to call in Mm -hmm. a little bit rather than call out here's where I think some opportunities are for us one is it's clear that there's a lot of things that students do in their extracurricular, which really are co-curricular. They want to work on a project with other people. Um, This relates to some interest they might have, um, say, serving an underserved community through public service or um, doing some research in a certain area. So I think we have a responsibility as an institution to find opportunities like that to make that more co-curricular so that students can learn those capacities and skills that they're learning uh, through their extracurriculars also in the classroom or to build on some of that. I think the second opportunity that we have um, that we should figure out a little bit is that 
many of these things also provide networks for people to access maybe certain careers that they're interested in. And we obviously have to honor that, but I think we should also think about how we can give students opportunities to connect with people that fall outside of a formal organization um, and then are able to develop those networks in a, in, a, in a wider way and through other methods other than saying devoting 30 hours to one single extracurricular. I think that 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 is an opportunity for us. Um, and I think working in partnership with our students, working in partnership with our alumni, who I think would celebrate that, we, we can probably do better in that area. Right. I would love the opportunity to talk to alumni about, you know, various interests. And I know that exists, you know, through OCS and all of that stuff. But I think it's one of those things that if no one told you to go to OCS and ask how to connect to alumni, you're not really going to do it because it seems like such a scary thing. It's another like barrier to entry. You know, if you really just want to have a very simple conversation about, oh, how does this career look like? as it stands or how do I like get an interview for this particular type of job you know it's, it's it feels like another barrier and your comment about seeking connection with people rather than trying to do that to extracurriculars I think is so important but I think what I've also seen at this school is a lot of self-segregation in the sense where people are very quick to go towards people that are very similar to them mm-hmm. Um, and I would love your advice on how do we facilitate an environment that people from genuinely very stark and different backgrounds feel comfortable engaging with one another without, you know, preconceived notions or preconceived biases? That's a great question because I think that's not only a challenge in our community, I think it's a challenge for our nation and a challenge for our world. Um, as a person who has a background in sociology, one of the things I know is that you know, it's very natural people to be around people who remind them of their favorite person themselves. Uh, it's uh, there's a kind of comfort in that. Um, but like your earlier point, I would say that your learning is very limited in that. I think most of us would say that if we're just around people who kind of parrot back the same things that we believe or don't challenge our values, that our learning stops. So I think part of it is is changing a mindset, which is are we here to reinforce or are we here to learn and and grow? But it's not easy because we live in a highly stratified society and highly yeah. segregated society along multiple dimensions. And so developing those capacities to speak across differences, to authentically engage with people who are truly different from us, to want to understand, know their story is really important. I've learned two or three things over the years in having opportunities to engage with people who really have different backgrounds and experiences from myself, which is one is don't start with our differences. Um, you know, well, let's immediately go to what divides us. <laughs> and rather actually learn to, you know, their story. How did you get here? Um, tell me about your family. Um, tell me what's really interesting for you. Um, and then in that conversation, inevitably, people often sometimes you learn about challenges they've had in their life. And while I may not have had the exact same challenges, I know what it's sometimes you know, like to be, to have that experience. But moreover, I appreciate them being vulnerable. And that in turn often reflects on me being vulnerable. And then out of that comes some commonness and, and possibility. And so then where we're different doesn't define our relationship, but actually becomes the most interesting part of our relationship of things that, you know, we have different points of view and perspectives. And so we can disagree on those things, but they don't necessarily define our relationship. 
And I've always really pleased and just delighted when I see students in, in that kind of environment. But it takes courage. Uh, it takes being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh, but I think the, the kind of value of that and the, how that just sort of enriches your life these are the conversations you will remember forever. These are the people you'll remember forever. And then suddenly diversity, which sometimes can feel like, oh, it's a challenge or it's something we have to kind of figure out. Suddenly you start seeing it as a source of infinite possibility. Yeah. Yeah, I think that for me, I've been like trying to push myself to create something that really facilitates that type of environment. And it actually relates back to my second semester senior year of high school where I had a vice president, you know, or a vice principal, excuse me, ask me, Audrey, you're about to graduate and go to Harvard, which is like, it's Harvard, right? And he's, and he asked me, and I apologize for what I'm about to say. He said, what do you give a shit about? Right? Like, you're going to this, like, esteemed institution. What are you going to do with it? And he said, literally, what do you give a shit about? And I think my last question to Dean Karana is, as an administrator and as a dean, but I think mostly as a person and a human being, what do you give a shit about? What do you care profoundly about? So I'm going to put aside like what I would say my narrow perspective, my family and my children and my wife. I mean, I love them more than anything and I wouldn't be anything without them. But in the sort of broader sense, I really worry that the generation in charge, whatever that means, has left our the next generation with a, you know, earth and climate that is on the verge of ecological disaster. That sometimes I feel like we live in a country that loves its guns more than its children. The levels of inequality are, you know, higher than we've seen probably since the, you know, industrial revolution. And so the things that I care about that matter to me is that we've got to set conditions for the next generation to thrive and flourish. And so what I really care about right now is spending less time wagging my fingers and telling young people what they ought to be doing and spending a lot more time listening to them. And not just listening to respond, but listening to hear and understand. There may not always be agreement. Some of it comes from you know, experience. but. I think our generation of students that I see in college right now and the ones who are just recently graduated have a sense of urgency and possibility and also a rugged idealism in which people know that the things we need to do are going to be difficult, but they're worth doing. And so I want to learn from that, those students. I want to be part of what I think a responsible generation really does do, which is leave the world better than the one that they found. And, and I want to at least move us in that direction. And that's what I care about right now. Incredible. Thank you so much, Dean Karana. Thank you. Thank you. Like I said earlier, you are truly a busy man. So I really do appreciate oh. you taking the time out to speak with me wow. and um, helping me along this endeavor that is the catalyst. Oh, uh, thank you so much. And my students are the reason why I do this job. And that's what I care about. Thank you.